0: Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 10, for October 19th, 2006. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of great stuff for you this episode. We get up close for an in-depth interview with Donna McKechnie, talking about her new book, Time Steps, and a whole lot more. We've also got Mail Order Bride, the musical The Flood, and a track from that, and the one-man show Truth. I also want to thank everybody for all the great iTunes reviews this past week. Keep them coming. And I want to remind everybody, if you're new to the show or new to Enhanced Feeds, if you listen to the show in iTunes while you're listening, a little chapter menu pops up in the top left corner, and it lets you skip around the program just like it were an audio magazine. If you're listening on your iPod, you can skip next track or previous track just like you do with anything else to move back and forward. We've got a great contest every week called Stump the Staff to win a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop. We'll tell you how to enter that later, but I'm going to tell you the winning question. Nunchaka asks, The refrain of the first song in two hit musicals by the same songwriters has an unusual similarity. The first interval, heard, is an ascending major seventh. Name the shows and their opening numbers. Hint, the writing team never worked with each other again. Are you stumped? The drama bookshop wasn't. We'll have the answer later in the show, as well as all the information you need to enter your own trivia questions into Stump the Staff. We got a lot of great interviews this week, so let's not waste any time. Classical meets contemporary in two plays put on in rep from the Resonance Ensemble, and we have the artistic director from the Resonance Ensemble, as well as the director of one of the plays, Eric Parnes, here with us today. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing good, Michael. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: first off, what is the show you're directing for this?
2: Uh, I'm directing a show called The Mail Order Bride. It's a world premiere by Charles Mee. Uh, it's a, a new comedy farce based on uh, the writings of Moliere. It's a celebratory, it's joyous, and uh, it is a musical as well. We have four original songs in it, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. The
0: Moliere play is also what you're in rep with, isn't it?
2: That's right. We're running in-rep with The Imaginary Invalid, which is one of the pieces that inspired this new play. Uh, the Mail Order Bride is inspired basically in general by the writings of Moliere, with a touch of uh, Aristophanes thrown in, a ch- touch of Wycherley, who are other uh, playwrights that actually had an influence on Moliere himself. And the Imaginary Invalid and The Mail Order Bride share a lead character, and uh, they both approach their objectives a little bit differently, but uh, there's a lot of similarities as well.
0: Now, someone to catch both of the shows, I'd imagine it'd be a very interesting insight into the origins of farce and uh, modern farce.
2: Absolutely, that's part of our goal on putting these two shows together is to give someone the opportunity to see not only how a play like The Imaginary Invalid is still uh, important and relevant and fun and really entertaining today, but to say, well, what is it about it that can transfer into a modern-day setting? What is it about it that has made a classic, has made it endure? And uh, I think Chuck has done a great job as the writer to to show us some of the parallels to modern-day comedy and farce, and, and he's used—he's been able to use the tools that Molière basically invented—to uh, to transfer into this great new piece.
0: Broadway and theater in New York is very cyclical, and it—it it doesn't seem to me that farce has been a very popular thing in the past five, ten years. And
2: yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, it seems to me that when times are tough, and and I think we are going through what could be considered by some people some some tough times as far as the kind of morale of the country and, and the morale here in New York, and, and there's financial things going on, and there's war going on, and so I think a lot of playwright sensibility does often go back to, well, how can we really explore what's going on in the country. I think now's a time as good as anywhere we could use a good laugh and I think that's something that both these plays provide so. So what are the challenges
0: in directing a farce?
2: You always hear that doing comedy is much harder than doing drama, and it's very, very true, because comedy requires a real almost technical sensibility of what makes people laugh, and there's there's certain rules that you have to learn And as an actor and as a director of how to play the comedy to get the laughs, and it becomes much less of a journey, like in a, if you're doing a traditional drama, it can be uh, you know, letting the actors really be naturalized natural on stage and and finding ways to inspire that and in comedy it's much more technical it really is from beat to beat to figure out you know, what props you need and what jokes can play and how they can play and it is it becomes a very technical process so it's actually very difficult too as a director to, to figure out what's really funny because something might be funny the first time that you look at it and then as you rehearse it over and over and over again you start to lose your perspective on it as a director so there's a ton of challenges I mean you know we have to keep it fresh we have to keep it alive but at the same time there's these very technical needs that have to get done as far as I'm concerned you know I try to suit the needs needs of the play as it comes up. Uh, the last play I did with a, was a very naturalistic, realistic, gritty drama down at the Bowery Lane Theater called Crazy for the Dog. It was three actors and it was a family drama. It was very heartfelt, it was very sincere. It was very real. So my approach in that was very much to step back and to let the actors find the the kind of inner life of these characters and figure out how they interact and how they how they move within within the space and how they what the relationships are. Well, approaching farce is a different is a different thing and so i have to i have to adjust my style as a director to the style of the piece and also to the to the to the particular actors i'm working with there are, are actors that really need a director to say here's what's working, and uh, this is where you need to move, and this is the inflection of the line. And there are other actors that need you to just just to encourage and to inspire and to uh, push in certain directions. So a director's job is, is is really complex, and it is a lot of balancing and trying to figure out what the play needs, what the actors need, what your other artists need, your, your designers, uh, all of your collaborators, and being able to give it to them. So I think a director really does, have to, to be really successful, has to embrace braces everything in between to, uh, to really allow the artist to really fully you know realize the vision of the piece and the, and the role.
0: So if people are looking for some good laughs, how and when can they catch the two shows?
2: Uh, the, both plays run in rep at the Beckett Theatre, which is on Theatre Row, 410 West 42nd Street. Uh, the show begins previews on the uh, 27th of October this month, and it runs through November 19th. They do run on a rep schedule basically every other night. Uh, except for Mondays were dark. Uh, On most weekends, you can see both shows in one day. All the information is on our website. It's uh, Resonance Ensemble. That's www.resonanceensemble.org, and uh, all the information is there on the performance schedule.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming in to talk about the show, and uh, good good luck with the run on the
2: rep. Thanks again for having
0: me. It was a real pleasure. Donna McKechnie is with us in the studio to talk about her new autobiography, "Time Steps: My Musical Comedy Life." How are you da-da, doing today? Da
3: da da <laughs> da, hit it! <laughs> I'm great. I'm, I feel really good being here. Thank you, <laughs> helping me get the word out.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your early career. I mean, your career has spanned 47 years, and that is amazing. You know, I, really I
3: didn't think... know that until today <laughs> when we tried to figure this out. Yeah, 47 years ago. Yikes! Um, I got my equity card at the Cast Theater in Detroit, Michigan, doing what they called Winterstock. Jeanette MacDonald um, was at the end of her career, and she was singing, playing the lead in Noel Coward's Bittersweet, and um, The King and I. Um, Anna w- was played by Betty White of the Golden Girls. No, Betty, wonderful. We did um, Bob Horton of TV. You're too young. <laughs> You're too young for that TV show. And uh, it, it Peggy Cass, wonderful TV actress on Gary Moore and television, and and she was um, uh, in Bells Are Ringing. So that was it. It was a great education, believe me.
0: Hall at Detroit Winterstock, huh?
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so where did you move from there? How did your How did you get into dancing and singing and music? Well,
3: theater? I started. You know, um, um, it was reflective in this show a chorus line when Maggie, who sings at the ballet, talks about imagining an Indian chief and with their arms up like this over her head. That was my story, as we all pooled our childhood stories and came up in the workshop with these uh, characters. So that was my story. A little girl who played music on the radio and would get up and start dancing, my mother took me to ballet. Now this is um, more than forty-seven years <laughs> ago, and uh, I had luckily I had some really good teachers in um, the suburbs of Detroit, and I studied. It was my passion, and like Sheila, the character in Chorus Line says, um, "I saw the red shoes." Well, I did too. I was seven. We found out that we're you know, we were all inspired by that movie, and it was just a, a dream. Um, I got my first job to go to New York by the same director of the Winterstock, David Timar, and he said, I was in my junior year in high school, and he said, well, we're going to rehearse in New York for five weeks, and then we're going to go on tour in the South, playing colleges, and um, for about five weeks, do you think your parents will let you go? And I said, well, uh, uh, sure, I'll, I'll ask them, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, it wasn't fine, <laughs> it was the opposite of fine, and as I recall it in my book, it was totally out of character for me, but I ran away from home to join this dancing troupe. It was kind of dramatic and and not always. uh, It was very painful for my family. It was very upsetting because we were basically gentle people, all of us. So this, whatever my hormones racing or that age, or I felt like it was going to be my only break in my entire life. And I kept saying to them, it's $75 a week, you know. So I ran away to join this troop. Then I came back. My father found me and brought me back. And then I think somebody told them, oh, let her go. She'll come. You know, she'll find out how hard it is. So she'll come back eventually. Um, I didn't come back. I I was fueled with that desire now to show them. So I really had to um, work. And like I say, luckily, I, I had really great training in dance. And I Found jobs. I found dancing jobs in New York, and so a couple years later, well, 1960. How to succeed in business without really trying? That was my first Broadway show. Meeting Bob fossey the choreographer, and Gwen Verdon, who was a a, you know a great Broadway star. Then she was between jobs, obviously. So she was our dance captain. So that's (laughs) that was pretty impressive. You know, I was a little ballet girl. And I had no theater training. I had no experience. I'd never seen a Broadway show. I mean, the first Broadway show I saw, I was in, you know, in the wings, you know, watching. And um, it was like going to university. I mean, first of all, um, I'm going to be singing at Cy Führer's memorial this Thursday. Cy Führ lived... Um, till a wonder, You know, in a wonderful way, successfully and happily, and he's so smart. To, to, I think he was 95 when he died. He was—I uh, kind of adopted him as my theater father. All these wonderful people—Abe Burroughs was the director, Frank Lesser was the composer, you know, who gave me my first voice coaching, you know, saying, make the move first and then sing the note, you know. <laughs> All this stuff that— I, as a young girl, I was just, you know, absorbing, and it turned me around. I did 180 degrees. I went, this is great. You tell a story with song and with dancing. At $118 a week then, an equity chorus, I thought um, I, I better learn how to act and sing so that I can stay in this business. It was a, a passion. It became a passion from that show.
0: So what were some of the things that came next for you after that?
3: Well, you know, I, I've i uh, said this before. Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim, you know, was the lyricist um, and composer for A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. This is a show that was uh, just hilarious and fantastic. I I decided, it sounds so, you know, silly now, I decided that I, I better get out of the chorus soon. You know, that was the thinking. that That line worked its way in a chorus line, too, you know. <laughs> that counting the age. You know, I was only 20. I auditioned for George Abbott and Stephen Sondheim for the part of Philia, my first national tour. And so Stephen Sondheim always knew me. He, he says kind of jokingly, as a singer first, I knew you as a singer first. That was a great year that I, that I had a great joy writing about in the book, about really learning from all these wonderful old character actors, um, Edward Everett Horton and Jerry Lester and um, Arnold Stang, how to recreate the jokes that I found, uh, you know, inadvertently in my audition. I guess it was funny in spite of myself, and uh, to try to. It took me practically the whole year to get the timing back that it was, that I had at the audition. So that was a great, um, that was fun, actually. That I, I learned something.
0: So was Company your first real breakout?
3: role? No, it was, I was hired by David Merrick to be in a show called Promises, Promises. It was a, a landmark musical. I mean, the first popular music of the 60s I think it represented. This was after Hair. But Burt Bacharach and Hal David, you know, to bring they brought their sound engineer, Phil Ramone. It was the first time we had a covered pit. I mean, it was that, that studio sound, that electric wonderful, you know, exciting rhythm and, and music. And it was Michael Bennett's first big hit as a choreographer, and I got my first featured spot because Michael knew I was a dancer, and being, I was one of three secretaries who had little scenes, you know, little side scenes, and we had to cut, or they had to cut. I say the we like, you know, because it <laughs> felt like it was a collaborative, but they had to cut a half an hour um, out of town. So those side scenes those side parts got cut so if michael hadn't put me in the middle of um, the trio in turkey lurkey time i would have been fired also i would have been let go so it it was a wonderful serendipitous thing and uh it continued to be very successful even it was a a bigger hit in in new york and london and i went over there um, i was the only american dancer to go over there to recreate his choreography and uh, it was a, you know, again a joy, a highlight of my life. Um, so that was Promises. Then I went right into um, Company. Right. There was another show in between there, The Education of Hyman Kaplan, which was the second time I was directed by George Abbott. Um, that audition worked its way into Chorus Line as well. I'm, I try to touch down on the on the inf- on those experiences in my life that ended up in the show or in Cassie's character. And that's the time I pleaded for a job. I was getting out of um, my first marriage. Not that there were a string of them, but it was the first marriage. And um, I called Jaime Rogers, the choreographer, and I, and I really begged him. I said, get me. He said, this is about Jewish immigration. You don't quite, you know, it may not work. I said, I'll do anything. I'll be your assistant. I'll get coffee whatever you want Um, I just have to have a job that recollection found its way when we were trying to find Cassie's theme you know why she was there so isn't that nice you have to do (laughs) do this for 47 years to make those connections sometimes
0: now with company that that was a Great meaty role you had, uh, finally. Well, it
3: was. It it still. I was coming. You know, I had this great dance, great music, uh, great arrangement. Billy Byers, Jonathan Tunick. I mean, uh, unbelievable, sophisticated music in this dance. Um, they didn't even put the whole thi- whole thing on on the CD. It was too long. It was it was. Incredible, but it was not really part of the story. it was more abstract. it was another yet girl coming off from you know left field just doing this incredible number that had to do with the central character Bobby, who was having a one night stand with the stewardess so I would this kind of abstract musical number came in that demonstrated his romantic you know his girl, his romance with his girlfriends but also the a more deep uh, the inner yearning of how he had re- a real problem with emotional intimacy. So all that said.
0: <laughs> well, now we're going to take a break before we come back to the interview, and, and we'll actually play uh, your... The three
3: girlfriends, yes. Yeah, Susan you're, you're, you're... Browning, Pamela Myers, and uh, that's me in the middle doing all that Andrew Sisters uh, harmony.
0: Oh. oh, I thought we were going to play your version where you do all Oh,
3: roles. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a, yeah, because this is a, a, a version that I do in concert, you could drive a person crazy. I, uh, I took advantage of it in, a little bit and I, uh, because it's my show, and I do all three parts. Company was the first adult themed musical about contemporary relationships in New York City, conceived by Harold Prince and Stephen Sondheim. And boy, was I in great company again with Michael Bennett, who choreographed the most. Gorgeous dance solo on Boris Aronson's magnificent set of steel and chrome. And I came up in this elevator and I leapt onto this platform and ran down the staircase onto the stage. And oh, and Stephen Sondheim wrote a song for me. Okay, a trio. <laughs> a doo-doo-doo
1: do. Doo-do-do. Doo-doo do do-do. You could drive a person crazy. Drive a person mad. Do-do-do-do-do. First, you make a person hazy. So, a person could be had. Do-do-do-do-do. Then, you leave a person dangling sadly outside your door. Which it only makes a person gladly. Watch you even more. I could understand a person if he wasn't good in bed. I could understand a person if he actually was dead do 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 exclusive you elusive you will any person ever get the juice of you you're crazy you're a lovely person you're a moving deeply maladjusted never to be trusted crazy person yourself a bobby is my hobby and i'm giving him up
0: so we're, we're moving quickly and, and closely, I think, to the the major success that was Chorus Line.
3: Right. I keep to- referring to it because yeah. all of these shows build to that. You know, Let me give a little um, history. We did a workshop. Uh, Michael invited a group of dancers to talk about what it means to be a dancer in show business. And we started down, thanks to Joe Papp and the Shakespeare Festival, we were given this theater, the Newman Theater, to develop these... These um, stories that we pulled together that became the inspiration eventually for the songs written by Marvin Hamlich and Ed Kleban. I used to call. I mean, this was the one of the center. Well, if not the centerpiece of the book, um, we were like we were very insular. We were uh, for months. I mean, this had never happened before. Uh, we were were making no money and loving it. You know, because the creative process was so wonderful. It's reminiscent of some of those Russian... You know, when they do, you know, uh, Chekhov for six months. We were in there, but, but creating something original. And Michael was our captain and, and, you know, shaping it and bringing in all these incredible people. This is all to say that we were like little hothouse tomatoes. It was all about the work. That was a great... For me, I had spent my whole life in other shows with Michael. Uh, we both had a passion to de- to develop this show, this what Michael called the Seamless Musical. I mean, because that's my soapbox. It's, a, it's an art form. It's an American art form. And we had been in a lot of shows individually, and we both felt... I mean, Michael really wanted his own show where he was in charge. And I was kind of hanging on his coattails. You know, I went, yeah, I want you to get... And he always said, I want uh, to, I a show for you. And I, I would say, get your own first, you know, and then, then mm-hmm. get, and put me in it, you know. So that was a kind of joking relationship. But he really um, went out of his way, almost killing me with kindness in the workshop, uh, as I describe in the book. It, it almost, you know, he was trying ambitiously to make me a showstopper in the show. And sometimes when you try to make a number a showstopper, it you know. It backfires, as it did initially in in our workshop. But then we found a way to to do it, and that's the most thrilling part of it. Is that when people say, "Oh, did you always know it was going to be that?" You know, you don't know. But what what we had, and what the, that's a great experience that everyone should go through. We had the opportunity to make all the mistakes, you know, make all the go down all the wrong roads. That's very rare. In our theater today, in our commercial theater, I mean, we don't even go out of town anymore. You don't, you don't yeah. remember that, right? Oh yeah, there I know was, yeah, okay, you know that. Yeah. I mean, there was a reason for that because the audiences out of town, the critics, Elliot Norton in Boston, they were part of all our. They were like the last part of the puzzle.
0: We may not be out of town anymore, but I think in a lot of ways, everybody views off Broadway as a jumping point. In so many shows now, we're not out of town though.
3: You I know, know, but keep it's, try to keep them away. But high fidelity but,
0: is developing in Boston. They're doing it out of town. Good, good. High fidelity. You
3: know, we did it with State Fair. We we went on a tour. We had so at least the producers could make some money. I mean, they had no money to really come to Broadway initially and just open. It's too it's too scary and and it's not um, it's not the right market. It's all marketing now, you know, and and raising money is difficult. Where was I? Oh, mine. <laughs> We had that luxury, yet again, of the time. We weren't out of town, but we were downtown in, in a great, um, you know, private place, a safe place. So when we opened on Broadway, you know, there was no advertising. So when we people saw the show, they didn't know what they were seeing. There were some people that would... Come to the Shakespeare Festival and for to see one play, and they would say, "Oh, we don't have tickets; we they're, they're sold out." But what is this show, a chorus line? Well, let's go see it. We're down here anyway, <laughs> so they they had not a clue. And people would see the show. I mean, after the first week, they knew. But and then when they saw that show, it must have been really stunning, you know, to to hear that orchestra that you couldn't see. It was they were hidden in the wings. So when we got up to the Schubert. In 1975. That was the best opening night. That was better than any award because we all knew that we were in a hit. You know, the critics didn't even matter. I mean, they were there to to celebrate with us. It was just a great celebration, that opening, and it was just, you know, wonderful. So this is all to say that Tony Awards came around. That's more political. That was too political for me. I was just so happy to be in a hit show and doing the part I'd always dreamed of the part that michael had you know it wasn't the girl coming out from left field and doing tiktok the dance and company it was actually a person with a with a history with a with a dilemma with a a musical you know a song a beautiful song and and a dance and part of the show
0: somewhere around this time your relationship with michael bennett changed from just being a long-term friendship relationship. Well, we were friends.
3: Yes, we were friends. Michael and I were friends ever since we met on Hullabaloo, NBC. (laughs) Oh, goodness. And uh, I remember um, he was such a, a, you know, a strong, dynamic dancer. And I could see everybody who knew Michael, the chorus people he worked with, the, the other dancers, his peers, everybody knew that he would be somebody that he would do something quite wonderful because he had such ambition and he was determined. You know, when you meet, you know, dancers in shows when you're in your 20s, you know, you look and you go, what are they going to do? What if they don't make it? It's a short-lived job, career. Um, so I, you know, I, I would say to Michael, Michael, what are you going to do when you grow up? You can't keep doing this the rest of your life, you know, dancing. And, and he looked at me very seriously and he said, I'm going to be a choreographer. It was so serious that I went, oh boy, I better you know, keep my eye on him. And uh, he did. He, it was like the following year he started choreographing Summerstock. And when we did, um, I guess, Promises, that was the first time that he choreographed a number, and inadvertently. I mean, I wasn't even supposed to be in it. We lived in our work. It was so wonderful and important to both of us. I think that by the time Chorus Line came about, and it was so intense and so personal, it was so successful that I think we both felt that there would be the, nat- and the next natural step would be to be together. I say we both felt it, but I would never have, have asked him, or or I never let my feelings be known. I, f- I felt it, it was um, not appropriate. So it didn't take much though when he um proposed I said yes and um we both felt that we could make that work that's the sad part you know with all good intention with all the conflicts with all the challenges um there was an there was a real effort but it was too it was for both of us it was too painful the thing that we both wanted most was to have a family with each other, a trusting relationship. Now, perhaps you know most people who have gone, you know, gone through this, um, if you don't have it with yourself first, you're not going to get it with anybody else. And we both faced that fear of um, emotional intimacy. That was much more um, the, the real problem for us than anything else, I think. It was too frightening, um, so the th- the only th- regret I have is that it ended the friendship, the marriage. Who wants to be married if it's not working, if it's not um, if it's not good? But you you miss that important friendship as as I did. We found before Michael died, we found a way to get back in a professional. Uh, communication, which was very gratifying to me. Um, he uh, brought us all back in 1983 to do this incredible gala at the uh, Schubert Theater. And it was just in the most amazing time for him to bring... You know, there were so many companies out. So he brought the German company, the Japanese company, he brought all the, you know, the touring company. The, I think the only company that wasn't there was the English company. And so when Cassie would do her number there would be ten Cassies. When Paul would do his monologue, there were seven Pauls, and, and when um, Val did her tits-and-ass number, there was three Vals, you know. It was people in the audience were just, um, it was thrilling. At the end, they had, Robin Wagner had to brace the stage the Schubert because they weren't sure it would hold 400 people. Dancers. So the dancers came on at the end, but this was better than any Tony. To look, uh, to look up after Theron Musser had lit all the aisles, even in the balcony, and you saw hundreds of dancers in the aisles and in the finale costumes, and looking up there when the lights went on, and I'm raising um, my hat on stage on the kick line, and I'm looking at like a reflection of all the dancers all down the aisles doing the same thing. That was I have goosebumps. That was um one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. I, I there's little that could top that. That was a wonderful event and um it brought us back in a in a professional way in more or less a, a friendly place but detached. Um and that's that's a shame. But anyway, it was it was good for us.
0: On that note, the the song isn't from a chorus line, but it seems like uh the next song we're going to play is kind of appropriate at this, maybe at this point where, you know, you've ended your relationship with Michael Bennett.
3: You're talking about I'm Losing My Mind? Yeah. <laughs> yes, that, that is, this is, yeah, that could be appropriate.
0: And this recording is from your performance in the... This was a,
3: a, a magical time with uh, Stephen Sondheim's Follies at the Papermill Playhouse in New Jersey. The
1: sun comes up I think about You, the coffee cup. I think about you. I want you so, it's like I'm losing my mind. The morning ends. I think about. I talk to friends, I think about you, and do they know, it's like I'm losing my mind. Sometimes I stand in the middle of the floor Not going left Not going right I dim the lights And think about you Spend sleepless nights To think about You said you loved me Or were you just being kind Or am I losing my mind I'm on. the middle of the floor, not going left, not going right. I dim the lights and think about
0: After, you know, all the chorus line hubble, you were really at the peak of your career. And in, and in 1979, something happened that changed all that pretty drastically. Well, I
3: left I left the show. We, we, Michael and I had, um, I always call London when I went over there to help him save the show, as it were, with the Cassie that they fired, which started like a revolution. Um, because you can't fire anybody in a social democracy, you know. It's like illegal. Well, it was at that time anyway. Because um, once you hire them, they're there. Um, but he stirred up a lot of trouble. I went over there. It was very difficult. We were on walking on eggshells around each other anyway. So this really kind of, I came back to New York, went back into the show. That was in 1977. And left, um, injured my back. I was exhausted. It was just an all-time low. Donald, P- I remember the last time I left the theater in 77, Donald Pippen, the conductor, had to carry me out. And even then, I I thought this is a very sad way to leave this show, this theater, this place. So meanwhile, um, divorce, you know, got settled in an apartment. It's like the accumulative effect of my whole life, which is why I wrote the book. Is uh, the rheumatoid arthritis um, is a, is a, especially in my case um, was a, is a stress related disease. Um, it didn't just happen overnight. It felt like it did, but it, it had been brewing. Um, it's a toxic condition on more in more ways than one. It was as emotional, physical, mental. So I this was beyond show business or will I dance again? This is will I live, you know, will I be able to walk? Um, I was told that I wouldn't be able to walk. I got a second opinion, the same thing. In fact, the doctor, who was very compassionate, said... I I really think you should look into 24 hour nurse care because you will be bed well. This, um,
0: and you're th- still, I mean, you're still relatively young at this point. Yeah, too. yeah
3: this is- I'm 34. That's sure is young to me. Um, yeah, uh, relatively young. Um, as I found out more and more, as I had to educate myself, which is another thing I like to promote, you know, self education, don't let anyone tell you what your destiny is because. What I found that even me with my stubborn, my runaway girl stubbornness, my willfulness that got me a lot of, you know, through a lot of things, it got me into trouble, too. And I had to now almost will my way out of it. But the willing of it wasn't going to work, so I had to educate myself. And luckily, I had a good friend, Susan um, Brandis slaven who found a doctor in New Jersey, in Trenton, New Jersey, His name was Dr. Sam Gettlin. He was 95 at the time. Um, He had helped her with with blood sugar through diet and vitamin therapy. And it worked. And she was just healthy as could be. And everything was regular and balanced. And so we rented a car. She drove me there. I had to go between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. in the morning, which seemed really eccentric and spooky. And um, the house was spooky. It, It looked like the a House of Seven Gables, you know, the turrets and everything. So we went in. He essentially gave me a, a yes and no list for food and behavior. I had yes food and, you know, and no. to It was what generally now, this was a, quite a while ago, This it would be generally now called an elimination diet. It's kind of to get cleansing, to, for cleansing, um, he gave me a lot of vitamins to write down, um, and even behavior that I had to like take all the credit, uh, critical negative thoughts. I had to be watchful of that, and and he said, stay away from loud people. Don't get into fights, or so I watched. I, I put this in my show and in the book, you know, about I had to watch Mr. Rogers for a year, but of course that wasn't true. <laughs> um, but I had to stay calm. I had to take vitamins, and he said, and when you do something that gives you pleasure, like if you get into a warm bath, and that took a long time to even get in there, um, he said, say, verbalize out loud, this feels good, just say it, connecting the thought with the feeling, and that basic, that's how basic it was, it's like baby steps again, and I wrote it all down, and and, um, and I would challenge him gently by saying, but doctor, is it?" and he'd say, don't fussing, and I'd say, I know, but he'd say, no fussing, So I went, okay, okay. He said, in three weeks, the pain will subside. In six weeks, you'll be able to walk. And in six months, you can do suitable exercise. And then, of course, I asked, I said, well, what about dancing? I'm a dancer. Will I be able to dance again? And he said, "Um, about a year. It was like that. I I went, it, it was almost hard to believe. He showed me Many letters and books that he had from other people who were cured, he said, all I want from you is to write me a letter saying that you feel better and that you're getting well. And I said, how much do I owe you? And he said, $18. I know. Well, as it turned out, well, the vitamins were pretty expensive, but I didn't buy them from him. 18 is the sign uh, in Hebrew of life. He had practiced his whole life medicine, um, and he said, I just got tired of burying my patients, so this is what I want you to do. Okay, it all came to pass. Three weeks later, six weeks later, six months, and I was dancing again. When I went, um, Bayork Lee called me, who's choreographing the, this production, to do a national tour. I was so excited but very terrified but I thought, this is my chance. I know this role. I can go back, and I have all of the reference, you know, the mem- muscle memory, hopefully. I would have a barometer for this dance, and I would know where I was. So that was how I got back. And coming into um, the Schubert Theater in 1986 to replace the, the pregnant Cassie at the time, I realized that I had to tell this story because it could help people. Um, and I never say what the vitamins are because, you know, everybody's chemistry is different. But as I mentioned before, so two publishers and four writers later, 20 years later, I met Greg Lawrence, who wrote, co-authored one of my favorite books written by Gelsey Kirkland called Dancing on My Grave. And it was so candid and so honest and painfully so, but but it was so human, and uh, so I was very impressed with that. So we've been doing that now for three years. Simon & Schuster just released it in September, and... uh, And I'm going to be there opening night, October 5th, to see Chorus Line yet again, 30 years later. One of the most profound things for me was to realize that even something that I did not believe in, like suicide, that that I would think that way. It was against my nature, but I really thought I understand why people get to that point where they really contemplate it. You would do anything to get out of that pain. Of course, once I realized that I couldn't do it, it was um, I had to, to now learn how to live with it and get better. I mean, I insisted that I would not live like this, but I had, if I couldn't kill myself, then I had to find a way to live. I didn't say dance, yeah. but I had to live.
0: Since that, you've still had an amazing, illustrious career yeah. that, that many well, people I was would dancing. Just die to have.
3: I was able to, thanks to Bayork, you know, we have all these friends, I call them angels, our angels on earth, um, she enabled me to, you know, take that. I took that show, it with a great company of dancers to Paris for the first time, an English-speaking uh, company, and 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 to Tokyo. I mean, it was it was fantastic. Well, it keeps coming back to me in meaningful ways. You know, it saved my life yet again. In other words, I, I was part of the creation of it. But it saved me by being there for me to do. I mean, it was uh, quite a turnaround. And now I'm still, I'm going to London uh, the end of this month um, to go to be in a a wonderful show called Over Here. And I'll be dancing again. So I'm back to class. (laughs) It's a humbling experience.
0: It's been a very big pleasure to sit and talk with you. Thank you, you Mike. for such a nice in-depth interview, and you're so forthcoming about all aspects of your life. It's, it's great, and I'm sure that uh, I'm eager to read the book. I, I haven't had a chance to read it all yet. In the middle of. I'm doing this interview while uh, doing all of the nymph coverage for the New York Musical Theater Festival.
3: Right, right.
0: But I definitely encourage all of our listeners to check out Time Steps by Musical Comedy Life by Donna McKechnie. Thank you. Um, If it's it's half as fascinating as this interview has been, I'm sure it would be time well spent.
3: Yeah, I left out all the good parts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to play one more song here as we close this out. Do you want to introduce this one?
3: On the Town. Uh, yes, Lucky to Be Me. I didn't sing it in the show, but I just love the song. So it was my show, Inside the Music, that I put it and uh, performed.
0: Well, thanks for coming down okay. and speaking so candidly with our listeners. My
3: pleasure. What a day.
1: Fortune smiled and came my way. Bringing love I never thought I'd see. I'm so lucky to be me what a night suddenly you came in sight looking just the way i'd hoped you'd be i'm so lucky to be me i am simply thunderstruck at this change in my luck Knew at once I wanted you Never dreamed you'd want me to I'm so proud You chose me from all the crowd There's no other girl I'd rather be to be me.
0: Marty Cooper has been with The Colony in the heart of Broadway for over 25 years. He's seen and met just about everybody and is an unabashed musical theater fan, which is why he calls his weekly segment, on the positive side,
4: hey, it's Marty Cooper once again. On the positive side, uh, just uh, last night uh, uh, had a wonderful evening at the August Wilson Theater. Saw a uh, benefit for the Actors Fund, of which Brian Stokes Mitchell is the president. A very gracious man. We saw him after the show, and Liz Smith introduced the show, and she spoke about the late Governor of Texas, Ann Richards, who just passed on. It was a wonderful evening with Emily Skinner playing Miss Mona, Andrea McArdle doing Dotsie Mae, Terrence Mann playing the Sheriff. It was funny, it was exciting. The choreography was as Seth Rudetsky puts it, amazing. It was just a wonderful evening all around and I, uh, it's very good that people are supporting the Actors Fund as well as Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. I like the fact that The Broadway community comes together on this. And and I wish they would record that. On that note, I will go into some of the Broadway cast recordings that I would take on a desert island with me, should I get lost there. One, of course, probably one of my number ones, is West Side Story. I could listen to that album and listen and listen, and then I get tired of it, put it away for three years, and it sounds just as great when I take it out again. I'm just as excited as I was about 50 years ago when it came out. I think it was the first stereo Broadway cast album, You know, and I was in love with it back then, and I'm still in love with the album. And then if you people have been listening, you know that Les Miserables is still my favorite show of all time. There are many recordings of Les Miserables, in many languages, I might add. In fact, if you come into Colony, you'll find a recording from Antwerp. My two favorite recordings are the Complete symphonic recording they did back in 1988 uh, with Gary Morris as Valjean and the great Philip Quast as Javert. He's doing a Vita right now in London. And the other favorite is the original London cast recording. Because every time I hear that, and it's evolved from that recording, that original recording, it really doesn't sound much like what we see now in the theater. But you realize when you listen to it, it is what made you love that show for the first time. Another, the original London cast of Oklahoma with Hugh Jackman. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful CD. Uh, the music is fleshed out uh, in a way you've never heard it before. Another one I keep thinking about, uh, Nine, the original production with Raul Julia. It's now a two-CD set with all the music that was written for the show. As it's just... Wonderful symphonic recording to listen to, and of course, one thing that's coming out in a movie in about two months Dream Girls. I can listen to that forever. I think Miss Saigon is also one of my favorites, and to me, the recording of choice is a complete symphonic recording that they did in 1993. I just find all the drama that was in that show on that recording. I love to listen to it, although it is missing Jonathan Price. it's missing Leah Salonga, but to me, it's made up with that wonderful, sumptuous orchestral music that uh, surrounds that show. I am also very much in love with the original recording of Chorus Line, as well, as the new recording of Chorus Line. The new recording because every note of music that was written for the show was on that recording, or at least most of the music is on that recording. You hear breaks and orchestral parts and vocal parts that were not on the original because the original cast recording was made for vinyl. And we can get about 58 minutes on a piece of vinyl and you can get about 80 minutes on a CD. So you have a lot of the things you are missing on the original recording. So I would take those two recordings with me, you know, uh, happily. I'm sure I can go on with this, but we have to cut it short. I might do a volume two, you know, probably have to bring a box of CDs with me. You know, if I find myself in a shipwreck, you know, (laughs) there are probably many others that I've been remiss in mentioning. On next week's show, I'm going to talk about some shows that should have been hits and weren't. This has been Marty Cooper, and until next week, stay on the positive side.
0: On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at Colony Music, or in the heart of Broadway at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. We already have a repeat performer here on Broadway Bullet with a prolific writing team that was involved in Illyria with the New York Musical Theater Festival, and now they're here with their new musical, The Flood. How you guys doing?
5: Good. Good.
0: Good to be back. Does everybody want to introduce themselves? Say what they're doing with the show?
5: I'm Kara Reichel, and I'm a co-author of the piece and also the director.
6: I'm Peter Mills, and I'm the co-author with Kara. We did book music and lyrics together.
5: I'm Jennifer Blood, and I'm in the show. I play Rosemary.
0: What is The Flood about?
5: It is somewhat of a documentary-type musical, although it's we've completely fictionalized all the characters. But it's based on the real event of the 1993 flooding of the Mississippi River, which at that time was the largest natural disaster in the United States history and subsequently has been eclipsed by Hurricane Katrina. It follows one town as they battle the river and try and sandbag their levee and save their town, and also a number of different sort of smaller plot lines and stories of individuals within the community.
0: I understand there's an interesting development history along with this whole show.
5: I actually, uh, about, I guess it was... 11 years ago now, I was in a, a class in college, and we actually went to a small town outside of St. Louis, Missouri, called Valmire, Illinois, uh, as part of a college uh, class. And we did research and interviewed people who were affected by the floods. And the the class was about turning that research in sort of an Anna Devere Smith way into a play, and that never really happened, but this sort of stuck with me, and then I talked to Pete. We were looking for a piece to develop, and I had told him about this experience, and we started figuring out, oh, this could potentially be fodder for a really interesting musical in a sort of subject matter that isn't dealt with a lot in contemporary musical theater.
6: So Kara so sort of pitched the idea to me and said, let's, uh, let's try to develop a musical about this. And my initial reaction was like, that does not sound like a musical to me. You know, a story about people in a small town on the Mississippi River Sandbagging and you know fighting a river, uh, and I didn't know how it would sing because most of my experience in writing for musicals up till then was very show tuny pasty cute little numbers I, I wrote like for college reviews you know that type of material so I didn't know what this would sound like musically but then Kara went ahead and said we're doing a workshop of it you know write some stuff and uh, and it was great to have the the actors that we had that summer in Georgia just sort of dive in and do the stuff Jen was one of them you know I tried things out and and started to sort of find my way into a sound for it. And a lot of it had to do with the big choral uh, numbers in the show. It's, it's uh, This show has a very large ensemble. There's 24 people in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that choral sound became an important part of this story about a town fighting the river.
5: And also, I think, we, we actually made the Mississippi River a character and trying to find a way that um, the river would actually sing as part of the world sort of gave it this sort of non-realistic style which allowed us to sort of open up a a wider array of possibilities for the presentation of the piece. So
0: So Jen, you've been involved from the very beginning, huh? Yeah. (laughs) How has that process been?
5: It's really cool coming back
7: to it now, a couple of years after we originally did it. We with the first reading stages in two thousand one, two thousand, and then doing the first production in two thousand one. So much more discovery than I thought it would be. I thought I'd just kind of come back in and do my old thing, but uh, I've had to recreate a lot of it, and I'm finding a lot of new stuff, and it's really cool.
0: So, what's the role you're playing in the show?
7: I play Rosemary. She's fifteen. She's a simple girl. She's mildly autistic, and she she's looking to grow up. She's looking to be independent, and she has a special relationship with the river.
0: And Now you started the role down south mm-hmm. in the stock. Mm-hmm. Were you from New York at that point, or have you uh, moved at that here point since? I
7: was at NYU. I was majoring in theater. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
5: She's originally from Jersey then. Originally from Jersey, <laughs> but yeah. right, outside, right yeah. outside New York. We were so. actually down in Georgia doing Summer Shock because that's where I grew up. <laughs> and I dragged a whole bunch of people down there for a couple of years, but it was great because it gave us a place to kind of hang out and create work away from the sort of tempo of the city where you always feel like you have to rush from this thing to the next. So,
0: so what are the
6: logistics in a... Uh... We wanted to have an actual flood with gallons of water and, <laughs> yeah. and when we did this the first time away. around, we yeah. tried to have boats because, yeah. uh, not to give too much away, but there is a flood in the second act yeah. and, <laughs> and, and people do have to uh, travel around in boats and we tried to do that the first time around and had to cut it.
5: Yeah. Uh, I, this is a show where, although we don't literally want actual water in the show. That was sort oh, of a I joke. Do. But I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah, it's something. Bombay could, dreams. Yeah, exactly. I know. Um, the, the great thing about the flood is that really, you know, when we embarked on this project, the, the premise, like, even if we did have as much money as we could dream of, you can never really create that event in in a theater in any way that's going to be as moving or as touching to people as they can create in their own minds. That was one of the reasons that we decided to make the river an actual character in the piece, to allow for a lot of that sort of stylized metaphor of, like, what does it mean when someone floods? It's not... And all of the plot lines on the show are not just about you know the literal flooding of the river, but it's about when people are under stress, there are natural forces acting on them, whether they're sexual forces or anger or you know all these sorts of things and then it, the the sort of smaller plot lines in the show, the characters kind of each in a way have their own flood depending on whatever it is in their life that's going on when the actual literal flood is going on. so And it's also helpful to us that there have been recently so many images in the media about uh, flooding with Hurricane Katrina. And, and you know, people have that, and they bring that with them into the theater. So,
6: the metaphor of the flood became kind of a, an important thing to us when we were developing the show, um, and Kara started to touch on it. The idea that there are these situations that are artificially created that caused like stress, which is essentially what went on with the Mississippi River, that people had built so many levees and tried to contain it so much that it made flooding much more severe when inevitably, finally, the river, you know, has to have its release. Mm -hmm. The fact that man has tried to control the situation so much is what causes, you know, the disasters on the scale that they had that summer. So we kind of looked for stories in people's lives where there were situations that were, you know, had that tension in them and had been artificially pent up in some way and, and needed Release. When can people catch the show and
0: where?
5: We are performing at the American Theater of Actors Ternuchin Theater on uh, 54th Street, 314 West 54th, between 8th and 9th Avenues. And our first performance is Saturday, October 21st, and the show runs until Sunday, November 19th. So there are 22 shows. And uh, this is a production of Prospect Theater Company, which is a, a company which we're all members of. And people can go to www.prospecttheater.org for more information and to see the full calendar performances and buy tickets.
0: Well, before we close out, we're going to play—we are short on time this episode, so we're going to play two songs for your show, but we'll play one next week. So <laughs> people have something to look forward to. But the one we're going to play this week is Runaways. And can Jen set this up?
7: Sure. Runaways happens on the 4th of July. Rosemary has just been taken to her first ever fireworks, and it's totally freaking her out. There's too many people around. And so she escapes to hang out by the river and get her peace back. Raleigh, who is um, a young boy in the town, comes to try to get her back. Because Alice, my sister's boyfriend, Uh he uh, comes to get her. He's supposed to be watching her. And he uh, wants to get her to watch the fireworks.
8: But don't you want to watch the fireworks? No. Why not?
7: Because I never do. Never?
8: I bet you'd like it.
3: No, I wouldn't.
8: Bet you would. First you see just a spark headed somewhere in the dark. No one knows what she's running from. She? Sure. Fireworks are girls? No, they aren't. They're runaways in the night. Pretty little specks of light. No one knows what they might become. But give them room and kaboom, they explode into bloom. They're runaways. Who knows where they're running to or what they're going to do out on their own. They're runaways taking off on holidays. Like some other little girls I've known.
7: I'm not a little girl. I'm 15.
8: Who said I was talking about you? I know lots of girls. Oh.
7: Well, you're still treating me like I was a baby.
8: Listen. They're starting. You can see it even from here. Don't you want to look and see what's going on?
7: No. Sounds to me like a bum. Like they had Vietnam.
8: me like your dad, told you it was something bad. You don't know, not unless you try. If you look now, then kapow, you would know, you'd see how. They're runaways going on a rocket ride, and what they got inside, you ought to see beautiful runaways if I could set the sky up please then I think that's what I'd want to be oh, See was I right?
3: It's pretty It's the prettiest ever
8: Just give them room then kaboom they explode. Up from the ground, ground. heaven bound, seen and heard. I like you.
7: But you kiss my sister.
8: Yeah, but that's different. I kiss her on the lips. Why? Because she's my girlfriend, and I want to show her that I love her.
7: Nobody
5: ever kisses me on the lips.
8: They will, when you're older.
5: Oh.
8: Come on. Let's go back. You can see the fireworks better over there.
0: As I said, we'll have another song from the Flood next week in Volume 11. And if you're interested in hearing more from the team of Mills and Reichel, you can hear two songs in an interview about their musical Illyria in Volume 3 of Broadway Bullet, which is still available for download. Remember, you can find out more information about all the shows and people we interview on Broadway Bullet just by going to our website, broadwaybullet.com. Imagine that. Can't forget that title. I said earlier we were going to tell you how to enter the Stump the Staff contest. If it's easy, you just go to BroadwayBullet.com, and we have a couple links at the top telling you where you can go to Stump the Staff. You just put the questions in our forum post, and then we put them in next week's show notes for the running. Please only submit one question per person, and the first ten questions entered each week are eligible for the contest. This week's $20 gift certificate winner from the Drama Bookshop is No Shaka. And his question was, The refrain of the first song in two hit musicals by the same songwriters has an unusual similarity. The first interval heard is an ascending major seventh. Name the shows and their opening numbers. Hint, the writing team never worked with each other again. Well, it was the toughest question, so you win, but the drama bookshop wasn't stumped. Max from the drama bookshop answers, The musicals are Damn Yankees and The Pajama Game written by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross, and George Abbott. The songs are six months out of every year and The Pajama Game. It might be worth noting that the hint given in the question is slightly misleading. It is true that the pair never worked together again, but that's only because Jerry Ross died just after Damn Yankees opened. A shame, Pajama Game is my favorite musical of the period. So that was Max from the Drama Bookshop that got the winning question. Get to BroadwayBullet.com and submit your own for a chance to win. You don't have to be in New York. The Drama Bookshop ships internationally, and it's always a great place to shop online or over the phone at dramabookshop.com. And they're located on 40th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. Obviously, the staff is very knowledgeable and can handle all of your needs. And it's always great to support an independently owned business. Well, let's launch into the last interview of our program. But we are going to have a little bit of news following that to close it out. Mike Daisy has been a monologuist for over a decade, performing all around the country, and he's now presenting his ninth show, Truth, at Ars Nova, through November 4th. We've got Mike in the studio here with us to talk a little bit about the show and a lot of other things. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. So first off, what got you into being a monologuist?
9: I and my family, everyone I I knew growing up in... Maine were storytellers and there were a lot of people who told stories and I was always fascinated by that and I worked a lot uh, in the traditional theater and I think that it was sort of a confluence of, of, of those factors of wanting to find a way to tell stories that embraced the uh, the open and oral parts of it instead of scripting absolutely everything and I wanted something that was more, um, had more arc to it than stand-up. You know, I wasn't that interested in stand-up although I did a lot of comedy. And so uh, it evolved out of that, I think, out of the desire to tell stories that mean something and go somewhere, but at the same time are funny and engaging. And so really it it was born out of that impulse. Now, so what's this show Truth? about. Well, it's about uh, a couple of different things. It's about sort of the story of uh, James Fry, who wrote uh, the book A Million Little Pieces, which became an incredible literary success as a memoir about addiction, but then also imploded very publicly on Oprah after revelations that much of the book was a lie. And so the show traces sort of the rise and fall of his story, and it's combined also with the story of um, J.T. Leroy, who is an author uh, who, it turned out, didn't exist, who was uh, created by a woman, just a made-up character. And so uh, it follows sort of both of those stories, and then sort of woven through it is the story of I teaching Uh, students in Maine about storytelling at the same time that these events are taking place and so the show is sort of a a weaving together of sort of the autobiographical and then the biographical and the point is to kind of get at some of the ideas about what what it means to say that people tell the truth and what the difference is between literal truth and emotional truth and to kind of unpackage those things with the audience and explore
0: them a little bit. Now as I understand the way you present these shows is almost kind of improvisational, though, with structure.
9: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're performed extemporaneously. So uh, I'm seated at a desk or a table, and uh, I have an outline, and the outline, each page of the outline is a scene of the monologue of the story. And so as the show progresses, scenes change based on the turning of pages. And so within each scene, there's structure that's set ahead of time uh, by me in terms of where we need to get in the story, but in terms of how we do it exactly on any given night it shifts a great deal and so at this point we've done uh, we're, we're we've just begun the run so we're um, five or six shows in and so the show is still changing 15 20 percent a night in terms of individual choices about what to talk about and that'll refine as it goes through the run and sort of and it sort of uh
0: takes form now i understand you tour around the u.s a lot as well mm-hmm. do you have any plans of getting out with this show anytime soon yeah, we're we're in talks right now to take it to
9: the Spoleto Festival at, in June and we're going to be taking some of the other monologues to uh, Berkeley Rep and Portland Center Stage and uh and the Edinburgh Festival throughout the rest of the year. And so um uh yeah, I mean there's been a lot of interest in the show I think because the subject of truth is on a lot of people's minds, and we spend a lot of time thinking about truth in media and truth in terms of what our government is telling us. And so I think those are some of the reasons that actually the James Fry scandal blew up as large as it did, and then, and then that's some of what the, the, the monologue tries to sort of uh, delve into uh, is, is talking about that. And because of that, there's been a lot of interest in, in, in booking the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I try not to get political too much, but I find it kind of very odd in the media that something like A Million Little Pieces would get such a scandal, but the fact that no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq barely gets a blink. In fact, still many Americans think there were weapons found.
9: And you know, in fact that's uh that's one of the things I, I, I touch on in, in the show. And I think that um it's so rare in public discourse to have a situation where a lie is perpetrated, one, two, that everyone knows and agrees that a lie happened, and then three, that somebody actually stands up and says I lied. This is not to uh, say that James Fry is noble and the show doesn't uh, paint him that way. Try to paint a nuanced portrait. But I think the reason for the incredible amount of instantaneous outrage was because I think the people were all feeling like we finally have a target. We finally have one person who we know for certain actually told the lie. And so I think that that helped inform sort of the out-of-scale response to the whole scandal and
0: part of what made it interesting for me to want to explore it in the show. The show is going on till November 4th at Ars Nova, so is there a website people can check out besides Ars Nova NYC? Uh, yeah, they, uh, they could check out my website, which is uh, mike Daisy
9: D-A-I-S-E-Y.com, and has all the information about other shows, and then, of course, links and information about about the show that's running now.
0: Yeah, and our listeners around the country can find out when you're coming near them. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for stopping down, and, and best of luck with the continuing run of your show. Thank you so much.
1: We saw a funny, funny
5: musical called Alter Boys.
0: Everyone's raving about Alter Boys, the new musical comedy and winner
6: of the Outer Critics Award for Best Musical.
5: Just knocked us out of our seats. I couldn't believe the dancing. I find myself just smiling, and I look around, and everybody had this big smile plastered on their
7: face. It's really funny. <laughs> funny. 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 Over the top. It's a musical that is
5: absolutely hysterical.
0: Really incredible.
5: Unbelievable. The boys were awesome. I believe in the Alter Boys. They didn't even have to sing. They could it just sit up
3: there.
0: It's fantastic.
5: Fantastic.
3: Fantastic. Fantastic.
6: The altar Boys give dynamite performances with infectious energy, raves the New York Times. Their songs are convincing enough to be on MTV. The critics
0: agree. It's hysterical. Alter Boys. You'll laugh your mass off.
2: All my expectations were fulfilled. <laughs>
0: I'm pleased to announce that the play, The Thugs, by Adam Bach, who we interviewed in Episode 8, has extended its run by two weeks, so you still can catch it through November 12th. You can hear more about it in his interview in Episode 8. Is anybody wondering what the top five musicals on Broadway are? Well, I got the answers for this week. Number five was The Drowsy Chaperone, which did A Million, It was just edged out at number four by The Color Purple, which also did just a little over a million. Number three is The Lion King with 1.15 million. Number two is Jersey Boys with 1.16 million. And topping them all and still going strong is Wicked with $1.4 million this week. There's some great off-Broadway musicals that are opening up at the end of October and beginning of November. And it looks like we're going to be talking to pretty much all of them. But be on the lookout for Mimi LaDuck starring Eartha Kitt, Evil Dead the musical, and How to Save the World and Find True Love in 90 Minutes. All of them are opening at the New World stages, so it's going to be quite a busy time for them, I imagine, and I'm looking forward to hearing the songs and talking to the people involved. Another play that has just opened is Journey of the Carcass. Uh, Some have described it as a play within a play, and that does not go far enough. It is a Beckett play inside of a Pinter play about writing a Beckett play. Definitely an interesting writing feat pulled off. And we're going to be interviewing the star of that show, Tony winner Dan Fogler from The Spelling Bee, in next week's episode, Volume 11. So we hope to see you back for that. We're going to be adding a few new things to our webpage, but there's still a lot to see if you go to broadwaybullet.com. We've got all the Broadway world headlines, and we've got... You know, blog posted, but we're going to take that a step further. We're compiling a list of a lot of the best theater blogs out there, and we're going to put together a page linkable from Broadway Bullet that has the recent headline from tons and tons of theater blogs, so that can be your one-stop shop. We hope to have that up by the next episode i'll let you know if that's the case also feel free to comment in our forums we have some great show notes that have more links to all the artists and shows that we feature in here and we'd love to see more of what you think about the show and you can meet some other people in the process not a lot of activity on the board yet but you know somebody's got to be the first to the party and we got thousands of you listening so i guarantee if couple of you take the initiative to comment on the board. There's going to be a lot of people following. you meet some great people, and besides theater in general, you'll have our show to talk about in common. Remember, you can also hear Broadway Bullets syndicated on Broadway World Radio at BroadwayWorld.com on Thursdays and Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Their show also has some other great programming and nonstop stop musical theater songs from all of your favorite shows and they even do a top six request at 6 p.m. Well, I'm going to be back next week with a lot more great interviews and songs. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and you've been taking a ride on Broadway Bullet.